We can end the climate wars. Rugged up up top, tiny little booty shorts. Oh, I sold a kidney to buy that jacket. I was riding a lot of fences. Disability comes in all shapes and forms. But even though we all understand that, there's still a lot of misunderstanding of disability. And that means inclusion is a massive problem in Australia, whether it's at work, uni, school, other social settings. We've got a lot to learn and a lot to do. G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you for Hack. We're focusing on disability ahead of International Day of People with Disability on Saturday. It's such an important day because it's an opportunity to talk about the issues that often get overlooked. It's also a day to celebrate the contributions and achievements of those who live with disability. Maybe that's you or someone special to you. If it is, I want to hear from you. What does International Day of People with Disability mean to you? You can message in 0439 757 555. We're going to talk to some amazing people over the next half hour. You're even going to hear how horror movies are helping some young Australians deal with their pain. It's wild. Let's get into it. Hack. Almost four and a half million Australians live with disability, yet many still face prejudice and a sense of exclusion. On Triple J. Yeah, four and a half million. That's about one in five of us. But even though disability is so common... Still, a lot of stereotypes, barriers that are stopping people from being fully connected. Disability inclusion's not just about people living with disability. It's an issue we all need to focus on and work towards. Actually, it's more important for those without a disability to understand and to do something about it. We're going to have a chat now with two people with different experiences of disability. They're actually two brilliant colleagues of mine. The first is Elizabeth Wright, the ABC's National Disability Affairs reporter. Liz is also former Paralympian and all-round champion. Hi, Liz. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. So you were born limb different. Can you explain to people what that means? Yes. So I was born with what I call limb difference. Essentially, that means I was born with missing limbs for want of a better word. So I'm missing half my right arm and I'm missing half my right leg. And I wear a prosthetic leg, which enables me to get around. (laughs) We're going to get into more of your experiences in a minute, but also with us is Evan Young, a producer at ABC News. Evan's got an invisible disability. G'day, Evan. G'day, Dave. Can you explain what kinds of things an invisible disability might include? Yeah, so as you say, there's there's quite a few um, people in Australia with, with with disabilities, four and a half million or so. But there's not there's not a ton of data on invisible disabilities. But when you think about you know what what an invisible disability might be, we've got stuff like autism. We've got stuff like uh, my condition, which is called myalgic encephalomyelitis, um, often called chronic fatigue syndrome. There's fibromyalgia. There's um, people who might be low vision or blind, and so that's a lot of disabilities. You know that might not be initially you know, visible to people. Um, so so there's, it, it's, it's quite common out there, even though we, we, we don't talk about it all that much. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's why you're here today. I wanted to speak with you both because you represent the vast spectrum of disability that's all around us. Some you can see, some you can't. Liz, we'll start with you. You've lived with disability your whole life. I imagine there's been all kinds of discrimination, harassment you've faced. And people would like to think that society has changed a lot. We've moved forward in many ways. But you had an experience just recently in a supermarket, right? What what happened there? 
Yes, it's uh, these kind of microaggressions have been happening my whole life. Um, this includes from when I was first born and my parents brought me home and our neighbour asked them when uh, they were going, my parents were going to put me into a home uh, through to, you know, struggling to get into mainstream education, struggling to get employment, right up to uh, the kind of microaggression that happened a few weeks ago in a supermarket. I was just doing my weekly shop like we all tend to do, at least... Um, you know, a couple of times a week. And I was just in the fruit aisle checking out some apples and I heard this woman start laughing and calling her partner over. And when I turned to look, I realised that she was pointing at my prosthetic leg and she waved her partner over and said, come and have a look at that. And in that moment, I felt I had, you know, that that visceral response that I usually get uh, when these microaggressions happen. I started feeling embarrassed, extreme shame. I wanted to run away and hide. I wanted to hide my disability, hide my prosthetic leg. Uh, but I think after many, many years of practicing pride and confidence in my disability, I actually, for the first time in my life, had a comeback. And I turned to this woman and I looked her in the eye and I said to her, that's not a very nice thing to say, is God it? Liz. <laughs> it might not be the most, you know, mind-blowing comeback ever to exist. But for me, in that moment, it was so important that I was able to stand up for myself and actually point out to this woman that what she was saying to me was not very nice and it was making me feel really awful about myself. What was her response? She uh, went extremely red in the face. Mm. Uh, she stopped pointing, stopped laughing, her eyes dropped um, and I knew in that moment that she was feeling ashamed of herself. Um, you know, it was very much that kind of body language that we see when someone's very embarrassed and they've been caught out. Perhaps the same something... way she made you feel. Exactly, exactly. And for me, I think that's the really important thing is that instead of me taking on all that burden of shame and embarrassment, I, in that moment, said, no, enough is enough and I'm going to push that back. Why do you think this kind of behaviour we're still seeing in 2022, is it because in society we're not talking about disability enough? Oh, I think absolutely there's an, a number of things. I think one of the biggest things is really a lack of representation. People um, who are non-disabled are just not exposed to the different types of disabilities that are out there. They're you know, dare I say it, ignorant about what disability actually is. Um, and it's this lack of education. Uh, it's a lack of representation through media. I think media can be a really powerful way to educate people. And um, I think, you know, whether that is in news, like the role that I take on, uh, you know, or whether it's in TV shows, you know, certainly we're seeing uh, a lot more representation start to crop up slowly in TV shows, which is, is again, creating that, that space for education around what disability is. I know that you lived overseas for a big chunk of your adult life. You're in London. Did you find it a lot different over there when it comes to society talking about disability, accepting disability as part of society? Absolutely. I think 
uh, the uh, countries like the UK, like the US, are definitely ahead of Australia in terms of inclusion and uh, diversity, I think, in general, certainly, and especially around disability. So it was while I was living in the UK that I came across the disability pride movement, that I really came to understand the different uh, disability civil rights movements happening in both the US and the UK. And these are just things that are not really spoken about here in Australia yet. But I think when we do uh, start talking about them more, that's when we can start to see shifts and changes. Yeah, the disability pride stuff is really interesting. Want to get into that a bit more later. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese speaking about disability inclusion with two brilliant colleagues of mine, Elizabeth Wright and Evan Young. Evan, your invisible disability, how does that impact your life? I mean... Disability doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter what it looks like. So I, I guess for, for, for my condition, my, my algae cephalomyelitis, um, it's, there, there's debilitating fatigue. This is more than, you know, just sleepiness or a fatigue that someone might have after going for a run. This is, you know, the best way that I can kind of explain it to people is almost like, you know, pic, you know being picture yourself hungover uh, and how difficult it is to kind of do stuff when you're really hungover. Now drink like another six-pack and now imagine waking up and feeling like that every single day. Yeah, wow. It's quite difficult to get stuff done. So there's there's the there's the physical fatigue, there's also the, the brain fog and sometimes that can be even worse. Kind of not being able, you know, read to read stuff. You, you recognize what the words are on the page or or on the screen or whatever, but you 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 kind of read them reading them over and over again, but nothing's going like going into your brain and you kind of have to yeah, to to it, it can be a little bit scary sometimes to kind of be in like a, a situation and not always understand exactly what's going on. So, yeah, it's, you know, there's no other word for it. It's um, it's it's really disabling. You know, there's some people might be listening thinking, oh, well, an invisible disability might mean that you don't have to deal with stigma, the harassment or anything else that, you know, people with a disability that people can see are dealing with. That's not true, is it? Definitely not true. No, it's, it's a different kind of stigma. And Liz, feel free to jump back in. We've had different kind of Feeling when it comes to employment, for example, I started off in the media as a casual. A lot of listeners will know what it's like to start off in a job and insecure employment. You don't want to kind of like you know piss off your boss basically to the point where they stop giving you shifts, sort of thing. So, mm. I've yeah, I, I've I've hid my hid my disability from employers before, worried about what you know what they might do. You know, if if I told them like you know that I, that I have a disability and that I, might, I have certain access needs and stuff will they stop giving me shifts? Like, you know, will they give me like good project opportunities or whatever? The reason why I thought, I, I think that is because yeah, stigma is really common um, and people react kind of like you're gaming the system almost sometimes when you're, when you kind of, you know, actually do come out and say, look, I might need a hand here. So Liz has had a very different experience. Yeah. I think, I think actually what, with what Evan's saying, and I know that uh, other friends I have who have invisible disabilities have said the same thing, have not disclosed their disabilities because they know, they understand that there is discrimination within employment against people with disability. And I've certainly experienced that myself. I've walked into job interviews and been completely outright rejected the moment I've stepped in because my, my disability is so visible and people have these concepts and ideas of what I 
can or can't do as soon as they see me. You know, it's different discrimination, but it's also not. It's also it's, diff- it's yeah. also very similar. It just kind of manifests slightly differently. But I think I think as well the other the other kind of difference we have though is once I'm in a job role, obviously it's a lot easier for me to ask for accommodations that I need because people know already I can't I can't hide my disability in any way, shape or form. So I think in that respect, it probably makes it a lot easier than for someone like me to then ask for those accommodations and someone, say, who has an invisible disability may be hesitant to disclose. Is it also a thing like choosing when to disclose it with dating, for instance, or in social interactions? Yeah, it's it definitely is. I think I have certainly gone on different, um, you know, different dates and stuff and just thought, I'm not going to I'm not going to bring it up until later on. You almost kind of want to uh, I I don't know exactly mate, what it is. It could just be kind of like internalized and an, an idea of of maybe how how people will react, but there, there's still assumptions that people with disability certainly when it comes to dating maybe can't offer as much as as people who are more able-bodied. And so you kind of at least from my point of view I've kind of worried in the past about kind of like almost like killing off somebody's interest before they even get to know me sort of thing because I'm worried that they might be like, oh, well, this guy has a disability, like, I'm not interested anymore, sorry. Whereas, like, maybe if I was to withhold it for a bit longer and, like, kind of gain their, like, I don't know, whatever, trust or something, it's it's silly. Um, but it is something that, that I, I think about and I know that it's something that other young people with invisible disabilities also have, have experienced before and kind of not sure, not really sure knowing how the other person's going to react because you, you're kind of showing that person a really kind of personal, intimate part of yourself. And if then they reject that part of you, mm. it's pretty crushing. Yeah, and I'm sure so many people listening now can relate to that. What about young men in particular? Is there like a lot of stigma and barrier with young men in talking about disability but invisible disability? Is it an easy thing, do you think, for young men to be talking about or not? Look, I think it's probably we. I think you know we we know that that maybe men and young men, um, or maybe older men. I'm not sure of the exact research anymore or, or the latest research, but we know that that when it comes to mental health, um, men are often li- less likely to kind of you know talk about their feelings and all of that sort of stuff. So I think it does kind of it, it does manifest in the invisible disability space as well. For example, I don't know many other young men with invisible disabilities. Most of the people that I know who are kind of out in a proud about it and stuff are young women. Yeah, this is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese chatting ahead of International Day of People with Disability this weekend with two disability affairs reporters at the ABC, Liz Wright and Evan Young. And we're getting some messages through. Someone says, I live with an invisible disability and because it's invisible, I find my workplaces have been really difficult. Often people won't understand how it can impact my work, energy and presentation. People give unnecessary advice, make jokes about the condition and don't understand. Look, guys, I want to talk about something a bit different now, and that's language, how we describe disability. Because years ago, people were just referred to as disabled, and it was used as a slur as well, a way of disempowering people, saying, oh, you're disabled. So in recent years, some people have preferred to be described as living with disability. That's become more common. But language changes. As we know, it evolves. It's common to reclaim words within a community that were maybe offensive in the past, Liz, what do you prefer, disabled or living with disability? Uh, I prefer identity first language. So I would describe myself to someone as a disabled woman. 
And the reason that I do this is, again, off the back of living in the UK for 13 years and really uh, embracing the disability movement and disability pride movement over there. There was a real push, particularly around something called the social model of disability, which is about saying that it's not what's wrong with the individual or that there is something wrong with the individual, but it's the barriers that are created by society. And when you look at language in terms of that, I am disabled by society, by wider society, by inaccessibility into buildings, for example, or into spaces or inaccessibility created by discrimination and negative attitudes towards disability. Um, for example, like with the employment, um, looking for, for a job and being rejected outright based on that, that person's perceptions of what I can or can't do. So for me, it's definitely about uh, identifying as I am disabled. I'm not going to shy away from that. In fact, I'm proud of that identity and I'm going to work hard for, for change as a disabled person. It's not the same for everyone though, Evan, is it? Like people have different views on this. They certainly do, yeah. And I think what's kind of cool about this is that neither neither is wrong sort of thing. Yeah. The, both kind of, you know, whether someone prefers to be known as a disabled woman or you know, a man living with disability or, or whatever, um, it's really important to respect, you know, their own individual choices. I think you can probably draw parallels to the evolution of disability language with um, the LGBTQ plus space as well. So, you know, I think people would, um, would uh, really becoming more aware of pronouns and stuff like that and how it's important to people, their preferences and their choices and their identity, you know, in terms of pronouns is, is respected. And I guess the same advice, right? If you're not sure how to refer to someone, if it is a disabled person or a person living with disability, you ask. Exactly. And it's a, I think it's just having that respect for that individual to ask what their preference, what their preferences are and then following through on that. I mean, and not actually kind of taking your idea of, how that person should identify and pushing it on them. So as someone, you know, I very strongly identify as a disabled woman, but if someone says to me, I prefer to be described as living with disability, of course I'm going to respect that and refer to that person in that way. Guys, thank you so much. I know I've learned a heap in this chat and so many listeners will have as well. It's really generous of you to open up so honestly about your lives, your experiences. And as I said earlier, it's not a niche issue. This is not something important to a small group of people in society. It's important information for all Australians. ABC reporters Liz Wright and Evan Young. I know you'll be flat out, but happy International Day of People with Disability for Saturday. And thanks for joining us on Hack. Thanks, David. Thanks, thank Dave. you. And Hack. We- On Triple J. And yeah, Liz and Evan are beautiful writers. They've written about all these issues and more this week. You can find those articles on the ABC News website. I've also linked to them on my Instagram as well. Hack. One's brain can't really produce pain and, for for example, fear at the same time. On Triple J. Yeah, we've just been hearing about invisible disabilities and conditions Australians live with that you might not even know about. And chronic pain is a big one. Chances are you do know someone who lives with chronic pain. People like Maddie Ruskin. There aren't heaps of treatment options available. And when you're young like Maddie, it can be tough to find people who can understand how intense it can be. And that's why more and more people are turning to a pretty unusual kind of comfort, horror movies. Yeah, you heard me. Horror movies. Here's Maddie explaining how it works. When my crank pain gets really bad, I boil the kettle for a hot water bottle, 
curl up in bed with my cat and watch something that will take my mind off the pain. It's not exactly a relaxing watch, but there's something about horror films that really helps with my pain. My name is Maddie Ruskin. I'm 25 and I live with fibromyalgia. It's a chronic condition in the central nervous system that causes a lot of pain in soft tissues and muscles. The condition is different for everyone. But for me, I wake up every day feeling like I ran a marathon without stretching first. And that's a good day for me. On the worst days, I feel like I've been hit by a car. And sometimes I end up hunched over the toilet, throwing up. I uh, started developing chronic pain and various other chronic illness symptoms when I was around 19 or 20. But my experience isn't uncommon. There are nearly three and a half million Australians living with chronic pain. People like Chloe Sargent. What am I these days? I'm a writer, producer, yeah, just a chronically fully sick legend. Chloe runs an online support group for people living with chronic illnesses and they have noticed so many people just like me. It is really quite amazing the amount of people that you that you meet with chronic illness and disability who are obsessed with horror films. For a long time, I don't think we could really figure out why. Having chronic pain is like living in a horror film. You can't escape. Nobody believes you. And every spare moment is spent working out how to survive. People with chronic pain? Yeah, we're the original Final Girls. Billy still lives in these woods in his own little shack, waiting for new counselors to cross his path, waiting to get revenge again and again. I used to be such a big scaredy cat. But now I watch horror films because they help distract me from the pain. I also identify with the typically female protagonists who are often not believed and gaslit. It says a lot that we want to escape into that world as opposed to the world of our daily chronic pain, you know what I mean? People sort of really underestimate how hard it can be sometimes. And like the protagonists being dismissed and discredited in horror films, most people living with chronic pain are women or people assigned female at birth and they often face discrimination from healthcare professionals and society in general. It took Chloe nearly a decade to get diagnosed with fibromyalgia, the same condition that I've got. I kept going to doctors and specialists and, you know, spending all of my disposable income on trying to get help and uh, for years and years got told that it was all in my head and I was being overdramatic. There's no government funding for chronic pain, limited treatment options, and the invisible nature of it means people aren't often taken seriously when they try to get help. People experience chronic pain because their brain chronically is trying to get them to change their behaviour in order to protect their body. Professor Laura Mosley is a professor of clinical neurosciences and expert in pain from the University of South Australia. He talked me through what on earth happens to the body when it experiences a chronic pain condition like fibromyalgia. Our pain system is misreading the cues, so it keeps producing pain even though our body tissues are not in danger. So we do know that the longer pain persists, the more effective all of our systems that are involved in pain become. 
so we get more and more sensitive. Lorimer was really interested in hearing about the connection between chronic pain and horror films. The evidence suggests quite strongly that fear trumps pain. And he speculates that there might even be some science to back it up. One's brain can't really produce pain and, for, for example, fear at the same time. It might flick backwards and forwards really quickly, so it makes sense to me that horror movies would give you an extended period of analgesia. Nobody else is dying tonight. While chronic pain continues to be underfunded and under-researched, I feel lucky that I've found something that helps, even a little bit. I'm sure I won't be running out of pain anytime soon, but living in a golden age of horror means I still have plenty to fear. <laughs> Hack on Triple Jack. Maddie Ruskin reporting for us there. That story produced by Shalala Madora. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. We're focusing on disability today and the challenges for young people with disability in Australia, whether it's in the workplace, just generally in society. And someone who can tell us a lot more about this is Dr. Ben Gauntlet. He's Australia's Disability Discrimination Commissioner and he's with us now. Dr. Gauntlet, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Oh, thanks very much for having me, Doug. What are the biggest types of discrimination people with disability are facing in Australia today? I think when we talk about discrimination uh, concerning people with disability, the biggest form of discrimination is probably accessing goods and services in the community. Uh, and the second of biggest is discrimination in the workplace. For younger people, discrimination in education is also a really significant issue. But one thing to be mindful of is the reported levels of discrimination are only the tip of an iceberg and it's what's not reported that's quite concerning and 52% of all complaints to the Australian Human Rights Commission concern disability discrimination. Wow. It's really important that young people have confidence and that confidence often occurs over time and what we need to do is to emphasise is that people with disability are diverse and disability itself is diverse too. And that's okay. Do you think that there's a real misunderstanding in broader society and the community about how much support people with disability need? Like, of course, there are some people who need more support than others, but not everyone with disability, for instance, is using the NDIS. Yeah, I think there's a really big education piece relating to disability in the community that we need to tell. Um, 47.3% of Australians have some form of chronic health condition. Uh, that would meet the definition of the Disability Discrimination Act. We also need to be mindful of that over 80% of people with disability in the workplace require no reasonable adjustment or accommodation whatsoever to work. And so what people often forget is that 80% of disability is invisible or over 80% actually. So that person you're talking to may have a disability, they may not. But it goes to emphasising that we need to treat each and every person as an individual, no matter what their background, be respectful, be open, be friendly. And that's the society we all want to live in. And I mean, a lot of that is to do with the media as well and, and coverage of disabilities. And I know that Dylan Alcott was speaking to us a few weeks ago about his efforts to boost employment in the disability community by providing employers and job seekers with better access to information and those kinds of things. But also he was speaking out about the way, um, you know, things like the NDIS are covered in the media. There's obviously some big challenges um, and big issues that need addressing, but there is also needs to be recognition that it supports a lot of people to get a quality of life they wouldn't have otherwise. 
I think when we talk about a national disability insurance scheme, we need to look at it as an investment, an iconic social policy that benefits all Australians, not just people with disability. You never know if you're going to need the NDIS. I had a spinal cord injury when I was 16 playing rugby union. If you'd asked me the day before I went to play that game, whether I would have ended up in hospital for six months later, I would have said no. And that's the occurrence that can take place. So we need to be really investment driven in terms of people that we value individuals that we see what's spent in the national disability insurance scheme is something that's great for the country and when we talk about employment we have a um, employment program called includability where we have resources for employers and also people with disability and we want to make sure that people with disability who want to get a job are able to because when people with disability are getting a not just a job but a good job and not just work but a career it's reflective of a disability policy system that's working well you're listening to Hackham Dave Marchese speaking with Australia's Disability Discrimination Commissioner Dr Ben Gauntlet Ben what kind of a difference do you think the Disability Royal Commission has made because we've seen some really devastating evidence being given in that over the past few months and I guess there's a lot of people out there that would like to think that maybe we're further along than we are when it comes to disability inclusion and discrimination but it's highlighted some real shortfalls in the community. I think it's really important when you think of royal commissions that one of the things they should do is to forensically analyse the past so that the stories of egregious conduct can be heard and that we can learn from what has taken place in the past to build a better future. And so it is concerning that we hear these stories. We do as a country need to improve. We all should be deeply concerned by some of the stories that we hear. And I think it then hopefully what people will realise is we need to create policies and programs and community awareness that means that these really unpleasant situations that occur are not repeated in time. We don't need to have a Disability Royal Commission every decade. We need to learn from what's taken place and have a better future. When you look in the years ahead, the next decade, how are you hoping Australia will be different? I am optimistic for the future. I think uh, if you just think of this year alone, we've had an Australian of the Year who's uh, an open supporter of people with disability, being Dylan Alcott, and Grace Tame also identified as having a disability. So we've had two people with disability in a row. We've got um, Kurt Fernley, who's appointed chair of the National Disability Insurance Agency, uh, disability was a critical issue in the election. And I think um, we're now starting to see politicians embrace the importance of disability. But what we want to get to is a situation where disability is an aspect of every discussion, that universal design of policies and programs is thought to be business as usual. And I'm optimistic that we'll get there. But what we really need to do is we need each and every Australian to view disability and disability awareness as relevant to them, not just relevant to some other person who they think may or may not have a disability, but it's everyone's business. And hopefully if we can get each and every Australian to see disability as an issue for all Australians, then in a decade's time, we'll have a country we're really proud of. Here's hoping. Dr. Ben Gauntlet, Australia's Disability Discrimination Commissioner, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Thanks, Dave. Hack on Triple J.
We've got a lot of messages coming through. Someone says, I was born with cystic fibrosis, generally an invisible disability. When I had a double lung transplant, my NDIS worker thought I was cured and said I didn't need them anymore. They never knew that CF isn't just lungs or that transplant meds cause so many other problems. Another person says, cerebral palsy, I have it. I'm a primary school teacher and always put my disability on my cover letter when applying for jobs. I do feel like I get fewer interviews because of this, but I don't want to work somewhere that doesn't accept me for me. That was Danny. Another person, Michael from Canberra, says phenomenal discussions. Thank you so much for bringing inclusion to the forefront. And Daryl, he's president of the Amputees New South Wales uh, Society, says language plays a huge part in identity, and so it's really important. Look, that's all we've got time for on Hack for Now. Thanks for joining us for this disability program. I'll be back tomorrow. Bye. Hack. Hack.